This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Is everybody awake? Did everybody eat dinner? Good. If you didn't eat dinner, that's great. Then you're not in a food coma. So this session is titled The Divine Revelation, His Gift, the Quran. My name is Maryam Sabah, and I am from the Chicago area. And it's my pleasure to be here to host this talk show format. What we're going to do is we're going to have each of our speakers um, present on this topic, and then afterwards we're going to have a discussion, and if there's time, we'll be able to open it up to uh, some questions. So this topic is about the journeys Prophet Muhammad took throughout history. We're never far from the word of Allah as his guide. The attributions and characterization of the Quran tell not only many tales of virtues, but portray the very essence of what Prophet Muhammad lived and breathed, a guide for generations and a guide for our nation. So we're going to be ready, guys. Are we ready to explore the pivotal role of the Qur'an at the time of the Prophet? Let's, let's hear that. Are you guys ready to learn? Okay. So we're going to start with uh, Sheikh Yasser Fahmi. He is the senior imam at the Islamic Society of Boston Cultural Center and is a graduate of Rutgers University and Al-Azhar University. Assalamu alaikum. I can absolutely see no one because these are the brightest I've ever experienced these lights on this stage. So I, can, I can't make out any faces, so I, I'm going to hope that people can hear what I'm saying and understand the message that I hope to impart upon all of us this evening. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wa ba'd. We all know that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had a 23-year love affair with the Book of Allah Jalla wa'ala. We hear all the time in our tradition from our scholars and our teachers, in our sources, how the Prophet had this beautiful intimacy where he 
lived with the Qur'an every night and every day. And over 23 years as he's journeyed through the realm of prophecy, that Allah would send him messages and guidance and ways about which he could find success in this dunya and be for us the ultimate guide. But very often we don't appreciate the fact that the Prophet ﷺ himself was on a journey. He was on a particular journey that was one of tremendous seeking, similar to the one that many of us are on today. All of us were seeking Allah, we're seeking clarity, we're seeking meaning. And very often in this world, we struggle to find that. We struggle to find understanding, we struggle to make sense with the circumstances of our particular conditions within our families or with our spouses or with the international political arena or the domestic political circumstances, we're constantly seeking. And the Prophet himself was a seeker. Allah tells us in Surah Al-Duha, وَوَجَدَكَ ضَالًّا فَهَدَى Did we not find you seeking and we gave you guidance? That guidance that the Prophet was seeking for so many years, although his socio-political, familial circumstances in Mecca were beautiful, he was the golden boy of Mecca. Everyone loved him. Everyone cared for him. He had no major issues. But he knew spiritually that something was off. That his identity, that meaning of existence was not being fulfilled. And so he began to seek every night for so many months. Some of our scholars say up to three to four years. He would go to Ghar Hira, seeking guidance, seeking God, seeking understanding. And he found pleasure in that moment. But the beginning of his 23-year love affair with the Qur'an happened in a particular night, in the nights of Ramadan, that was for the Prophet a traumatic experience. You know, very often we hear about the revelation of the Qur'an and we overlook the fact that it was at the tail end of a journey of seeking that culminated in this particular moment where the Prophet ﷺ received revelation from the angel Jibreel. And his initial response to revelation was not, you know, the skies parted and the birds were singing and, you know, the sun rays were out and everything was nice and cozy. It was the exact opposite. It was a very intense experience. And we all know the famous narration of Jibreel coming, grabbing the Prophet ﷺ, commanding him to read, the Prophet being terrified, saying, I don't know how to read, exclaiming and, and saying to, 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 you know, to us in the narration, I felt that I was about to die. I felt that I was about to go faint and so on and so forth. And so in the few minutes that I have, I wanted us to explore this particular moment because I believe it has profound secrets for us as we are trying to find our own revelation. We want the Qur'an to be for us true revelation that reveals to us the meaning of this world, that exposes to us the guidance that this Qur'an has in it for us, that has this guidance, this healing, this clarity that we're constantly hearing about. But I know full well many of us have yet to experience it the way that we want to. So what can we learn from those initial moments of revelation? that I believe will give us an entryway in some of the essential keys to gaining access to Allah's divine miraculous text. 
Number one, it was the profound meaning of submission. Everything about that initial moment of revelation was about submission. And this tells you something about the secret of the Qur'an. Very often when we're going to the Qur'an, we're going to the Qur'an with our intellects, with raw logic or intellect or intellectual capabilities. So we'll say for example, you know, I don't speak the Arabic language. Therefore, I can never access the Qur'an meaningfully. Because the Qur'an was revealed in Arabic, I don't speak Arabic, I can't access the Qur'an meaningfully. We go to the Qur'an with this sense of, based on my intellectual capacity, that is the only way that I can ever benefit from this book. But what we see in that initial moment of revelation, when the Prophet is saying to the angel Jibreel, ma ana biqari', I am not someone who reads, we're exploring the fact that the Prophet himself was illiterate and did not actually know based on his intellectual capacity to fulfill the command. And so that, th that three times of repetition where he says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, he's entering into this complete state of submission, intellectual submission. Because Allah is telling him, Ya Muhammad, before you can fulfill the command of read, meaning before you can engage this divine revelation, you have to say, Ya Allah, I am humbled by your magnificence. I, in comparison to you, am nothing. Because when the, when the Prophet entered that, into that complete submission, Allah gave the Prophet the true key to accessing revelation. And that was, Iqra, Bismi Rabbika Ladi Khalaq. Read in the name of your Lord, the one who has created you. When the Prophet ﷺ entered into the recitation and the engagement with the Qur'an through Bismi Rabbik, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, in the name of Allah, that's when all of the bounties and the beauties and the virtues that the Qur'an has in store for the Prophet ﷺ and therefore his ummah began to spill forward. And this is an essential lesson for all of us as we're thinking about the Qur'an. I know many of us have been trying to read the Qur'an for 5, 10, 20 years. Every Ramadan I tell myself, this is the year where I'm just going to immerse myself in the Qur'an. But then we try, and we try kind of this very loose trial, and we go at it with our basic intellect. You know, the Qur'an, you know, kind of, I, I can't really gel with it. It doesn't really make sense. It sounds a little bit convoluted. I can't, you know, manage the stories. But we're not realizing that the essential pathway into engaging the Qur'an is truly a spiritual theological one. It's not an intellectual one. It definitely the intellect plays a role. And we are an ummah of iqra, meaning ta'aqqul, tafakkur, tadabbur. Our intellects are prime in that regard. But a part of the exercising of the intellect is realizing that we have a spiritual, theological state that we have to realize. And that's the secret of Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. That if I truly want to access the Quran, I have to do it in the name of Allah. And what that means is not simply saying Bismillah, but realizing that it is only by Allah and through Allah can I ever attain or find meaning in this world. 
That's why the letter ba in Bismillah is so essential. The grammarians and the scholars of rhetoric, balagha, they say that the letter ba has over 17 meanings in the Arabic language. And from those meanings are ba'ul isti'ana, wa ba'ul sababiya, wa ba'ul ma'iya, or ba'ul za'ida. All of these are to indicate what? The ba' of aid, the ba' of support, the ba' of cause, the ba' of witness. To say ultimately, Ya Allah, as I'm opening up your divine and miraculous revelation that you gifted to mankind so that the Prophet could ultimately find meaning and then by extension all of us can find meaning, then the only way we will gain access to that miraculous meaning is through you and by you. It is only by your support and your aid will we ever be able to gain this guidance and success. If we can spiritually situate ourselves in that humble state as we're approaching Allah, we don't go to Allah with our egos. We don't go with Allah with our logic, with our very subjective and simple logic. We don't go to Allah Jalla wa ala saying, you know, I have 17 PhDs and I'm sorry, this Quran is just like any other text. If I go to Allah with that ego and that arrogance, why would Allah give me access? I go to Allah with humility, with a recognition of being so small and so incapable. And that's what we learned from that initial moment of revelation. When the Prophet said, ma ana, ma ana biqari, ma ana biqari, he was saying, Ya Allah, without you, I am nothing. Me by myself, I am nothing. It is only by your support and your aid and your guidance can I ever understand. Once the Prophet submitted in that humble way, Allah gave the Prophet access, endless, profoundly beautiful access to the Qur'an where every single night it was about reciting the Qur'an, being with the Qur'an, loving the Qur'an. It was about just hearing the verses of Allah and finding himself all night in tears. One night, and I know I'm supposed to close 30, 45 seconds and I'll close. But one night the Prophet ﷺ is, is crying and crying and crying and Bilal comes to wake him up. And he says, Ya Rasulullah, what's wrong? Why are you crying? He says, shouldn't I be a thankful servant? He said, Ya Bilal, how can I not cry in utter gratitude and thankfulness to Allah for His bountiness and His bountifulness upon me where tonight it was revealed this miraculous verse that verily in the creations of the heavens and the earth in the alternations in the night and the day are signs for the people of hearts. Those who remember Allah as they stand and as they sit and on their sides and they look into the creation and they say, Ya Allah, verily you have not created this meaninglessly or haphazardly. This is the humble servant who when receiving Allah's revelation felt a sense of beauty and bounty. Ya Allah, you're finally giving me clarity. Now I understand why I exist. It is for you. It is only for you. I only seek your pleasure. When you gave me this clarity, Ya Allah, how can I not but sit there and sob and cry out of a state of indebtedness and humility and thankfulness. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us of those 
who are submitting to Allah before they enter into revelation, where they go into Allah's revelation with humility and with a state of gratitude and thankfulness. May Allah bless us all to be of the people of the Qur'an and the lovers of the Qur'an and the reciters of the Qur'an. Thank you so much for that. Uh, just a disclaimer, I am not texting on my phone. I am taking notes, and I really hope that you guys are doing the same. Uh, if, you're, if you're like me, I can't remember everything in my head, so I have to uh, write it down. So uh, we'll move on to our next speaker, Dr. Jamila Kareem, who is the author of American Muslim Women Negotiating Race, Class, and Gender Within the Ummah, and co-author of Women of the Nation Between Black Protest and Sunni Islam, Dr. Kareem is former associate professor of Islam at Spelman College and holds a doctorate in Islamic studies from Duke. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So alhamdulillah, it's such a pleasure to return to ISNA in this fine company, mashallah. Uh, last year when I spoke at ISNA afterwards, I wrote a blog post about my talk. My sister and I started a blog about a year ago titled Hagar Lives, so after Hajar who, as we know, was a black woman. And I mentioned that I remembered Hagar in my Isna talk, and I explained why I remembered her. And also, I noted in that post that whenever I take the Isna stage, I feel compelled to talk about race and gender. Now, those of you who know my work, uh, that doesn't come as a surprise. I've written a couple of books on American Muslims that deal with race and gender. And I also give a few speeches a year where I talk about ways that we can improve relations between African American and immigrant Muslims. So given my life's work so far, I've come to the realization, alhamdulillah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed me with a calling. And that calling is to call us to unity, to call us American Muslims, the American Ummah, to become the beloved community. And what is meant by the beloved community? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he envisioned a community that is known for brotherhood and sisterhood. But more than that, it is a brotherhood and a sisterhood that stands out as exceptional. And why is that? Because its unity is not easily achieved. And why is that? Because it is attempting unity in the face of gross racial inequality and in the face of deep-seated misogyny in the face of hypocrisy and arrogance. Nonetheless, nonetheless, this brother and sisterhood is attainable with a powerful weapon, and that weapon is our hearts. But not just any hearts, hearts that exude the highest human qualities, like love and gentleness and forgiveness, preference for others, compassion, empathy, humility, generosity, patience, hope, wisdom, balance, and all of these high virtues emanating from the highest. 
and that is God consciousness. So hearts that are constantly remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, constantly thinking of Allah, turning to Allah, adoring Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, fearing Allah, and yearning to be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what community is better positioned to be the beloved community? Who are the people of brotherhood and sisterhood? Who are the people that have as its leader, as its guide and teacher, a human being who exudes these human qualities, these high qualities with the utmost beauty? And as we all know, that is Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He is utter beauty and he calls us to beauty. He said that I was sent only to perfect noble character. So his calling, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, was to make our hearts beautiful. And what was his method? He lived beauty, he radiated it in every glance, in every utterance, and in every step that he took. His beloved wife, Aisha radiallahu anha, said that he is the Qur'an walking. This means that the Prophet and the Qur'an are mirrors of each other. He is a mercy, the Qur'an is a mercy. The Qur'an is a guidance, he is a guidance, al-hadi, al-hadi. The Qur'an states, O humanity, indeed an advice has come to you from your Lord, a healing for what is in the hearts, and a mercy and a guidance for those who believe. This is an indication that the early Muslims needed healing, and we too need healing. Every human being needs healing. And our healing is the Prophet's calling. He was sent to make our hearts beautiful. So becoming the beloved community starts with the heart. It is an affair of the heart. And we know that our hearts need beautifying because when we should be loving our brother, we are instead looking down upon him. And when we should be caring about the condition of our sister, we turn the other way at times, devaluing her struggle and her particular concerns as a woman, therefore devaluing her humanity. So what I want you to take away tonight is that we need each other to reach the heights of faith and beauty, the heights of Iman and Ihsan. For we know that our faith is not a complete faith until we love for our brother and our sister what we love for ourselves. This is indeed a collective journey. Our goal is one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The fact that we are a collective and ummah is a mercy to us. Ummah, the Arabic word for community, originates from the same root word as um, or mother. Like the ummah, the um is an incredible source of mercy for us. Also, the Arabic word imam shares the root word with ummah. The imam of the ummah, the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, is a mercy to all the world and his wives are the mothers of the believers. And this confirms that women represent a collective source of mercy for the ummah. Yet, how do we treat our women? Do we treat them with mercy? Do we honor and regard them? 
or do we treat them as second-class citizens? Do we make every effort to hear from them and learn from them? We talk highly of qualities like patience and forbearance, generosity, and service. Is there any position that cultivates these high virtues like being a mother? And women who do not have biological children, they provide a significant amount of talent, energy, and resources to the Ummah. Without the Prophet's beloved wife, Aisha, anha, for example, our knowledge of the Prophet, and therefore our guidance would not be the same. In our dialogue later, I look forward to exploring further this idea that the success of the American Ummah depends on the beloved community and beloved hearts. Again, it is an affair of the heart, a collection of hearts. And we can rediscover this reality as we explore the role of the Quran as it was being revealed to the early believers and witnessed in the blessed being of Muhammad Thank you so much, Dr. Jamila. Our next speaker we have is Yasmin Mugahed. She is the author of Reclaim Your Heart and her newest book, Love and Happiness. She's a writer for the Huffington Post, an international speaker, and author who focuses most of her work on spiritual and personal development. Um, we're all on a journey, and I think that it's really great that, alhamdulillah, the theme of this convention is about coming back to the Qur'an for guidance and hope. And the reason why I think that's so important is that along this path, just like everyone, um, you know, when you get in your car and you're going on a journey, there are many pitfalls that you may face along the way. And there's a lot of times when you get off track. And we as a community uh, are on a journey. And part of every single journey is pitfalls. There's going to be times when we have to face struggle. There's going to be times when we lose our way. And the only chance that we have to end up where we need to be is by having that hope and guidance. And so coming back to the Qur'an is an essential conversation we need to have. Uh, what I want to do is kind of think about uh, what, what a person needs to be successful on a journey. Now to begin with, if you use the analogy of, um, you know, you're going on a trip, you're going on a road trip, or you're flying, you need to know, if you're going on a road trip, you first enter your address into the GPS. So you have to know where you're going to, where you want to end up. If you have no idea what the address is, you're not going to end up at your destination. Simple as that. So we have to be very clear of our end goal. I think one of the mistakes that we make um, at individually and collectively and as a community is I feel that sometimes we lose sight of the greater goal. And part of the reason why that happens, like one of the reasons this happens is, for example, when I'm part of one organization, I be make my loyalty to that organization, or I'm part of um, you know, a certain race or a certain group of people, and I allow my loyalty to that organization or that group of people or that race to supersede my loyalty to the greater cause, to the greater community, and that becomes a pitfall. So we have to always be mindful that yes, we have the lesser, we have the goal, small, you know, lowercase g, but there's always keeping in mind 
the greater goal, capital G. We have to have that in mind. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu attakhullaha wal tandur nafsum ma qaddamat lighad wa attakhullah. In this ayah, Allah is addressing the believers. And He says, Oh you who have believed, fear, have consciousness of Allah, have taqwa of Allah. Because this is, we can't be successful if we're not conscious of God, if we're not conscious of the fact that there is a judge and he's watching. You know, in any competition, when do you put on your best behavior? Or when do you, when do you really try to impress? Is when you know the judge is in the room, right? It's like kids when they're fighting and um, as soon as the parent walks in, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they, 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 they start to act better. And that's because they're being watched. They know that the one in charge is actually watching. Having taqwa is this realization that Allah is always watching. That, he's, that you're conscious of that and that changes the way you act. So Allah is saying, oh you have believed, have taqwa. And let every individual know, be conscious of what they have put forth for tomorrow. See, we're, we're very often conscious of what we're going to do in 24 hours tomorrow, right? We're very conscious of what we're going to do next week. We have a plan for all that. But Allah is reminding us to be conscious of what we have sent forth for the tomorrow, capital T. The tomorrow that comes after we leave this life. And that tomorrow, capital T, no one knows when it is. That's the thing. No one is guaranteed that they're going to be in this life and that on this date, that's when they'll face their tomorrow, capital T. No one actually knows when they're going to face their tomorrow, capital T. And you know, subhanAllah, just in the final, like a, a week or two ago in my community, uh, there was a brother, he was driving. You know, so many of us, uh, we go to Tarawih and we come home, right? But this brother, he was on his way to Tarawih and he never came home. He got in a car accident and he died. And this is the reality of how fragile we actually are, is that we never really know when that tomorrow is coming. And so for us to be successful, we have to be conscious of what we've sent forth for that day. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us of this. And then again, Allah ends the ayah with taqullah to show us how important taqwa is. How important it is to be conscious that Allah sees us. And do not be like those who forgot Allah. And this is very, this is key. So often we talk about identity, right? Like what should be our identity, losing identity. Allah tells us here, He diagnoses why people have identity crisis. He says, do not be like those who forgot Allah, so He made them forget their own selves. And what happens to a person, what happens to us is that when we forget our ultimate purpose, that we're actually on a journey to the capital T tomorrow, that, that, that capital G goal, right? That end. That when we lose sight of that, we actually forget our own selves because we're forgetting our ultimate purpose. We forget why are we, why are we here? And there's so many things that we strive for. I know there's a lot, there's a lot. There's we have to make a certain amount of money. There's we have to look a certain way. There's the, you know, we have to have a certain type of career. We have many goals, lowercase g, and that's fine. But what has to happen is we can't lose sight of the final, the end, real end goal. Because when we lose sight of that, not only do we get lost, but we forget who we really are. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not a central part of our lives, you know, when Allah is just something of rituals, we have a lot of rituals 
And some of us are very ritualistic in, in, our, in the way in which we know Allah. Ritualistic meaning, yes, we pray. And in Ramadan, you know, we finish the Quran. We maybe decorate our houses with a lot of beautiful calligraphy of Quran. We might even put Quran on our necklaces thinking it's going to protect us, that kind of thing, right? So we have a lot of ritualistic sort of relationship with our deen and with Allah. But do we really have Allah at the center? Are we really conscious of our final goal? And unless we are, then we will lose our, our way and we'll lose our own identity. We'll forget what it is we're really doing here. And that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسِ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ See, we, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of things we strive for in this dunya. Everyone has different things that they prioritize, things that they're running towards, things that they're working hard for. But here Allah tells us that although there are many purposes that people have, there's one ultimate purpose for which we were created. This is an interesting structure. Allah is saying we have not. He starts with a negation. You'll see this structure a few times in, in, in the Quran. That Allah starts with a negation. He doesn't just say your purpose is this. He says we have not created jinn and human beings for any purpose. For any purpose. And then Allah says using this structure of first complete negation. Complete take away any other purpose. Ultimate purpose capital P. And then Allah says, illa li'abudun, except. So what this does is it shows us there's no competing ultimate purpose. There isn't. It's just the ultimate purpose. Yes, we have other smaller purposes that we strive for, but this is the ultimate purpose. Illa li'abudun, except to fulfill ubudiyya to Allah. Except to know, love, serve, worship God. That's the ultimate purpose capital P. And if we lose sight of that purpose, we lose our own selves. The Prophet ﷺ advised us to be in this life like a traveler. The thing about traveling is this. Many of you are traveling just now, right? We're staying at a hotel. We're, we're, we're you know, we stop at rest areas. We're, we're temporary here, yeah? We know it's temporary. See, the mindset of a traveler is very, very different than the mindset of someone who thinks they're home, you know? You know when you're home, you have a very different mindset than when you're a traveler. When you're a traveler, you're never getting too attached to the place you're in. Nobody has ever gotten attached to a hotel room, yeah? Especially not those pillows, because they are the worst pillows ever. You don't get attached to a hotel room. You don't get attached to a rest area when you're driving on the highway. You're there, you know it, you may even enjoy it, you may take what you need from it, but you don't think that it's your home. You don't mistake in it for your final destination. You know that you're actually headed somewhere else. You know that your home is actually somewhere else, and this is just a temporary stop. And so the Prophet ﷺ tells us that that's the mindset we should have in this dunya. He says in a hadith that I'm like a traveler who stops in the shade of a tree for a while and then continues on his journey. When we have that mindset, we behave very differently to what life throws at us. We behave very differently. And just like in the example of a traveler, if you don't particularly like the bedding in your, in your hotel room, it's not the end of the world because you know you're leaving eventually. And so there's, there's a different way in which you, re you respond 
to what you experience because you realize this isn't your final home and you have a final destination. Thank you so much. Uh, well, we have a lot of gems that were dropped just now, so I'm going to try to do what I can with the allotted time that we have. Um, what we're going to do is we'll have some, some discussions. I'll ask you guys questions. Feel free to jump in if you want to add anything to someone else's question. And uh, we'll start with Dr. Kareem. You mentioned the beloved community in your talk. Uh, can you tell us some lessons from the Quran and the Prophet's life that can help us to become that beloved community? So I was thinking about this book a lot. I came to a realization um, as I was reading the Quran in Ramadan, and I thought, you know, to what extent have we really prioritized becoming the beloved community? Have, how, to what extent have we actually lifted our hands in Dua and asked Allah to be this community of brother and sisterhood? And, you know, if you think about it, if you ask any American Muslim, you know, what is the struggle that we're facing? I don't, no matter what their race, gender, they would probably tell you that we are struggling with our acceptance in the United States. And we are struggling with being actually the beloved community in the eyes of other Americans, right? We're, we're battling anti-Muslim bigotry, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, though, are we resisting, are we um, addressing the struggle in the most effective way? The great Imam al-Junaid said that one cannot struggle against his enemies outwardly except he who struggles against his enemies inwardly. And meaning, the inward enemies meaning the ego and the desires of the ego. And the one who has been given um, victory over these desires and he has victory over his enemy. And he who is defeated by the desires of himself, then he is defeated by his enemy. So if we do not prioritize this inward struggle, right? And as a collective, that would be the struggle for beautiful hearts, the struggle for our hearts to be united. Then how really can we effectively resist and struggle against the external enemy, in this case, again, that anti-Muslim hate and bigotry. And so what I came to realize as I was doing my reading was that if we look back at the early Muslims who, again, after many years of being patient, and they were persecuted and then being patient, eventually they were commanded to, to fight, right? But first, their hearts were made beautiful and their hearts were united, and then, they fought and won these physical battles together. Uh, there's a very sweet story of a man, a traveler, who came to Medina. He may have been one of the immigrants, I'm not for certain, but there was a traveler who came to Medina, and he was tired and also very hungry. And he asked the Prophet ﷺ for food, but already the food in his household had been distributed to the poor. So the Prophet ﷺ asked, is there anyone among you who, you know, who can take this man in as a guest for the night. And there was a man who volunteered and said that he would do it. And so he took this traveler home with him. And in reality, though, this companion, he too, he himself was poor. And so when he arrived at his home, he 
went to the side and whispered to his wife and asked, you know, do we have any food? And she said, you know, only enough for our children. And so then he thought, he said, well, you know what you do is, you know, busy the children so they're not thinking about their hunger. So the equivalent of that today would be, you know, put on a movie for the children. So they'll have them not think about it. And then when they get really, um, when they, hopefully by the time they're um, hungry, hopefully they're tired or when they, you know, they'll basically put them to bed so that um, they don't notice, right, their hunger. So put them to bed. And then when we sit with the guest, with the traveler, when we sit with him, uh, turn out a candle, turn the candle out so that it's dark and he doesn't know that we're not eating with him. And so let him eat to his full. So that's exactly what they did. And then later, when the next day when they saw the Prophet he looked uh, at this companion very pleasingly and told him that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is pleased with the way that she treated your guests last night. And so this companion, he was one of the Ansar. He was one of the people of, of Medina. And one of my favorite ayah in the Quran, it gives us very high praise of the people of Medina. It says that those who were already firmly established in their homes and firmly rooted in faith show love for those who migrated to them for refuge and harbor no desire in their hearts for what has been given to them. And they give the immigrants preference over themselves even if they too are poor. And those say from the covetousness of their own souls, they are the successful ones. And so this, this verse is a clear indication that these people already had, had beautiful hearts and, and had, um, had love established in their hearts. And, and they had the Prophet Sallallahu in their midst, right? So it was, it was easy for them to radiate this, to move toward this. So, in, in, you know, finally answering that, that yes, the Quran commanded them to fight. But again, how do they fight? What is the most wise way? What is the most beautiful way to fight? And they have the Prophet Sallallahu there as their guide, right? That to approach the Quran with wisdom, we have to have that love for the Prophet in our hearts. We have to have that humility that Sheikh yeah, so talked about. And then we apply the Quran with wisdom. So I think that's one of the things is to really prioritize the struggle, not to abandon the work that we're doing to change the Im image of Islam in America. That's critical work, but to prioritize the collective work to bring our hearts together. So, so just to kind of shift gears a little bit, I think sometimes when I, when I think about even for myself about the Quran and how to apply it in our lives, a lot of young people are struggling. You mentioned identity crisis or even a, a crisis in faith. So they might hear a talk like this and feel like, well, it makes no sense to me. Like, I, I can't even understand it. It sounds so old-fashioned. So what are sort of more relevant ways that, that people can embrace the Quran in their life? Okay, bismillah. Uh, I think for me, having, you know, grown up actually very close, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, so Chicago's like my backyard. Um, having grown up in this country, uh, how did Islam become relevant to me growing up? And what I realized throughout, you know, my development is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because if we go back to the definition of God, we realize that God is not limited by time and space. Allah God, the creator of all people and all time, right? This is not just the Muslim God, but is the God of all people. That he is not confined 
by time and space. So if God says something, it is timeless, meaning that he's not limited by time. Therefore, it is as relevant today as it was at the beginning of time with Prophet Adam, السلام, there are certain principles that are timeless that God says. Now, within that, obviously, there are a group of scholars who are, their job is to be able to extract rulings that can be obviously relevant to that time. But there's certain principles that God tells us, that teaches us through his messenger and in his book, which are timeless. They are principles that, that we, can, we can use today just as they used it 1,400 years ago and before that, all the prophets. Now, what are those principles and how is it going to have to do with my life, right? I think one of, I, there's many, there are many, but one that I believe to be um, something that we really, really need right now, and that is how do I cope with my struggles? How do I cope when I feel like I'm being attacked? How do I cope when I feel like I'm being surrounded by a storm? What do I do? And I believe that within our book, there are so much, there's so much inspiration for that exact thing. But I'll just pick out one from the Quran, which I personally have found so much uh, inspiration, per, you know, in my own life from. And that's one that many of you who've heard me before ha have heard me mention. It's one of my favorite stories, and it's the story of Musa alayhi salam when he was trying to escape persecution by Pharaoh and his army. And Allah tells us in the Quran that when he was escaping and he was trying, um, you know, as he was trying to escape, Bani Israel were slaves. This is a group of slaves, totally oppressed. And Musa salam are now, they find themselves in front of the Red Sea and behind them is Pharaoh and his army. So now they're in a situation that looks impossible. And I started to think again about this story after the last election, if you know what I mean. And I felt like, we as a community feel almost like this. We feel like, like almost trapped. We feel like, okay, where do we go now? And, and Allah tells us, see, this might seem like a story. It's a cool bedtime story, right? But in fact, it's as relevant today as it was at that time. Allah says, فَلَمَّا تَرَاءَ الْجَمْعَانِ قَالَ أَصْحَابُ مُوسَىٰ إِنَّا لَمُدْرَكُونَ Look at the response of Bani Israel. Even though it's in another language, in another context, it's so much like the response that we had after the last elections, to be honest. That when the army saw each other, so Bani Israel, when the, when the groups, they saw each other. So the army, the, the people, Bani Israel see the army approaching and they have the, the, the Red Sea in front of them. They have the, the uh, army of Pharaoh behind them. And their response was, Inna lamudrakun. Indeed, we will be overtaken. It was a response, a knee-jerk response of despair, of like, that's it for us now. You know, this, this panic, this panic that we felt, they felt that. They said, we're going to be overtaken. And it's so powerful because you see the Allah juxtaposed, he, he compares and contrasts the response of Bani Israel to that situation and the response of Musa salam to the exact same situation. He's also standing there in front of the Red Sea with an army behind him. But his response is completely different. He said, nope, no, we won't be overtaken. We will not be overtaken, absolutely not. Kalla is a very emphatic, absolutely not. And why, what does he follow up his kalla with? 
Indeed, my Lord is with me and he'll get me through this. See, that type of tawakkul is not just relevant at the time of Moses and the children of Israel. That type of tawakkul is just as relevant today and will continue to be relevant till the end of time. He had his trust in Allah, that Allah would get him through it. And you all know what happens next. Allah splits the sea. See, you might think that this is like, as you said, old-fashioned. Oh, that's just, that's just a miracle that's given to prophets. Yes, we're not going to have a physical sea split in half. But Allah can split the seas of our problems. Allah does. But it requires a certain formula of hope, yeah, and, and, not, and not giving up. And, and being able, hope and tawakkul, trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So to those kids, for example, who are being bullied at school, yeah, it might feel just like that, that, that they feel like, you know what, like giving up, like falling into despair. And this is motivation for them, that Allah is indeed with you. When you hold on to your identity for the sake of Allah, for example, the sisters that are in hijab, the sisters who refuse to take off their hijab out of fear or out of pressure, that when they choose to do that, they are following in the footsteps of Musa salam, who is saying, by no means, we're not going to be overtaken. Indeed, my Lord is with me and he'll get me through this. He'll get me through this school year. He'll get me through this trial. Okay, so, so kind of in line with this about how people may, may think, the olden days are not relevant to us. Uh, what about people who, who want to change maybe perhaps sort of the meaning of the Quran to suit their lifestyles or the way things are going now? A lot of people will say, well, that was then and we need to change it for now. How, how do we deal with this and how do we, again, I don't know if the, making it relevant is the word, but how can we deal with those kinds of situations? Um, <clears throat> You know, that, that's a very common kind of consideration that we hear, not just within the Muslim community, but you hear it within the Catholic, the Christian community, the Jewish community, this constant idea of the need for reformation or change. And there's no doubt that time and place, things will, you have new occurrences, new developments. You may need a new type of language to engage the particular modern moment that you're in. But what's essential, I believe, in the process of engaging divine scripture, because we're all believers in Allah, and we believe that Allah sent to us a divine text, the Qur'an, and He sent it to the Prophet wasallam. So that, in and of itself, I mean, it would require more time. That's a big deal, right? If I were to tell you right now, if you want to know something about linguistics, go sit with Noam Chomsky, everyone's going to say, yeah, you know, that's a big deal. Noam Chomsky, yes, linguistics, PhD, MIT. And so, there is no comparison, the magnificence and the greatness and the grandioseness of Allah and His Messenger. Now, the reason I say that is this, is before I can judge any given matter, I have to have a holistic understanding or at least comprehension of what this thing is. You know, the scholars, they have a principle it's a very essential principle that's useful in all fields of life. They say, Al-Hukmu ala shay' far'un an at-tasawur, or far'un an tasawurihi. That to be able to judge any given issue in life, if I want to come and assess what this thing is and make a judgment call, I have to be, have a conception, I have to at least understand 
you know, what the basics or the parameters of this thing is. So for me to come to revelation, to Allah's book, and basically say, from an outsider's perspective almost, before actually going in and grinding and saying, you know what, this Qur'an needs to be worked around so that it's relevant to me, then basically what I'm doing is I'm not working from within. What I'm coming is with my own subjectivity, my own biases, understandings, perspectives on life, and I'm projecting them onto the Qur'an. And if I don't immediately find them in the Qur'an, then I say the Qur'an is irrelevant. And that's a very dangerous plight to take in life. The Qur'an for us, as Allah says, is a source of guidance. So what then is my responsibility? My responsibility is to dig deep into the Qur'an and explore that reality. Try to understand how can this Qur'an be my guidance? But there are, as Sister Yasmin was noting, there are steps for that. And one of the essential, essential steps to begin to seek that out is actually commitment to hard work. Commitment to struggle. You know, we live in a moment in time where we want everything very quick, very accessible, very easy. If it doesn't come to me in the form of a three to five minute YouTube clip, then I'm basically not going to engage it further. But ask Sister Jamila what it took to come to the point where she can attain those PhDs and put out these magnificent works of academic you know, output. It took a lot of work burning the midnight candle. That's why the Arab would say, مَنْ كَانَتْ بِدَايَتُهُ مُحْرِقَةً كَانَتْ نِهَايَتُهُ مُشْرِقَةً Those whose beginning points burn, they will find ishraq, they will find beautiful lights thereafter. Now, if you go back to my initial reflection in the beginning, I spoke about the Prophet's beginning experience with Revelation as being traumatic. It was a very intense and, if you will, painful experience. We know that the Prophet was terrified, so he ran to our mother Khadija and he fell into her warm embrace. And he said, Inni akhafu ala nafsi, I'm worried about myself. We know that the angel Jibreel, akhadahu fadammahu hatta balagahu jahd, that Jibreel took him and grabbed him and held him so tight until the Prophet felt that he was going to die or go faint. So the Prophet experienced psychological trauma, emotional trauma, and physical pain and trauma. What do you think the lesson in that for us is? That's to recognize that nothing that is truly virtuous and good comes easy. Everything comes with hard work and even pain. What a lot of postmodern philosophers, philosophers will have us believe is that pain is very bad and you should always run away from pain. That's why we are obsessed with diluting our pain, numbing ourselves. We'll amuse ourselves to death as the famous author noted. We'll watch TV endlessly on loop, Netflix, until we're blue in the face and our eyes are completely dry and tired. We'll find any sources of pleasure, intoxicants, all of that because we believe that pain equals bad. But all of us know experientially in life that there is a concept of good pain. There is a concept of good burn. That when I work out and I really build my muscle, I feel the burn and I see that's a good burn. Similarly, when I go into the Qur'an, like I said in the beginning, I have to do it with humility. But I have to be committed to hard work. I can't go to the Qur'an, kind of, you know, dilly-dally and say, Oh, the Qur'an, I went to it once, twice, ten times. It really didn't, I didn't find myself. And then, you know, I kind of gave up. I have to say, no, I know. Because 
so many, you know, throughout centuries have been saying, this is the book. I have inherited this from generation of generation. Clearly, there must be something good. Or else 1.6 billion people would not be following this, right? Throughout the centuries. And so perhaps the deficiency is in my effort, not in the book. Right? That doesn't mean that we don't need, you know, act, you know, brilliant, thoughtful, creative scholarship about negotiating our times. That's one reality. But if I want the Quran to, you know, give me its spiritual beauties, its its theological fortification, I have to go into it with humility and a commitment to hard work. By the way, that's why after the command of Iqra, what were the first commands? Ya ayuhal muzammil, ya ayuhal muddathir, O you who is cloaked. Stand up, qum. You know, it was qum qum layla illa qalila nisfahu awinqus minhu qalila awzid alayhi wa ratil qum. You know, stand up and pray. Stand up and recite the Quran. And then it was qum fa'anthir. Stand up and warn. It was, he was, the Prophet was told, Ya Muhammad, there's no longer any time for relaxation. It's about work. And so this dunya, to find any of the virtues, any of the true bountiful matters of this dunya, I have to commit myself to hard work and I have to be willing to experience difficulty and pain. And when I push through it and I embrace the pain, I will only find growth and I will only find increase. So I believe essentially on that journey is the readiness to hard work and the willingness to experience the good burn and good praying. And with that, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala open up the doors of his bounties and his virtues and his lights for us. Allahumma ameen ya rabbal alameen. Yes, I want to also address that as well, that um, really when, when, oh thank you. Really when we do that hard work, right, we find that the Quran is actually more relevant to our times than what we may have initially thought. And this especially comes up with gender and uh, the sense that you know, we need to update our faith or reinterpret the Quran given, you know, some of the, the gender liberation ideals in our society. And what we find, though, is that the Quran and the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that um, they are very much um, advanced in this quest for women's liberation. And we know, you know, we many examples that show this. And one of my favorites, though, is the time when Um Salama when she um, said to the Prophet, she said, why is it that we are not mentioned in the Quran to the extent that men are? And I, I really love this question because often there is this idea that the faithful, righteous woman is the woman who you know, doesn't speak up. Uh, again, a lot of, we've been doing a lot of work to uh, change that idea, but, but still, you know, there was once this idea that, of that. Or, um, two, sometimes we feel that women in our society don't have the right to even just ask the question, right, about gender equality. So this, her, Um Salama's questioning, it affirms that it's fine for us to use our intellects. It's fine for us to wonder when it, it seems like there's some kind of gender imbalance, to at least ask, right? And so after Um Salama posed that question to the Prophet Sallam, later that day, the, it was revealed to the Prophet this very beautiful verse that I'm gonna read. And so many of you know it, but I think it's one of the ones that we love to quote more when we're talking about 
gender equality in, in Islam, that certainly in the eyes of Allah, men and women are equal, and we're, we're equal spiritual and intellectual beings. And it's, this, the verse was that, re, that was revealed was for submitting men and submitting women, believing men and believing women, devout men and devout women, truthful men and truthful women, patient men and patient women, humble men and humble women, charitable men and charitable women, men who fast and women who fast, men who guide their private parts and women who, who guard their private parts, excuse me, and men who remember God often and women who remember God often. Surely Allah has prepared forgiveness and a great reward for them. And, and so also too, uh, going back to her question though, you know, why is it that the men are mentioned often or mentioned more? And so another thing that I've thought about and other scholars have also talked about this as well is that you know, one of the reasons that men are addressed more in the Quran is again, the Quran is a guidance, right? And all of us need guidance, but it's often the men who are the ones who are, um, you know, sometimes transgressing these boundaries at the expense of women. In other words, that men need to be reminded that they have to treat women with kindness and justice because often they're the ones who are likely to commit an injustice against women than the other way around, right? And we find that this is still the case in our society, right? That we have this, these causes against um, violence against women, right? And so, the, again, the Quran is um, this guidance for all times and it's relevant for all times. And I think there is a lot of space. When we do the work and we have that humility, we can find that it does um, fit our times perfectly. So before we open up to questions, if you guys do have any questions, Keep them in your mind, and the microphone will make its way over to you. Uh, but we do want Sister Yasmin to read from her book for us. Um, so I'll just uh, read a, a short excerpt from um, the book, Love and Happiness. I just released it. It's going to be, uh, I'm going to be doing a, a selling and signing right outside by the Isna booth. The reason I want to read this is because the intro kind of talks about this struggle. It's very personal. Um, um, both of my books are very personal about my own struggle. As I mentioned, I grew up... Uh, just around here, I had to find my own uh, identity uh, as not just uh, a Muslim, but as a woman. Uh, growing up in a society where I didn't always feel like I fit in. Uh, you know, we have our parents, but sometimes it's difficult to connect because they grew up in a different culture. And then I have the people I go to school with, and it was difficult to connect there. Uh, so I, uh, and, then, and then I went through different things in life which... Uh, taught me about struggle and taught me about loss. And so what I've tried to do is tr I tried to give back through whatever I learned through my own struggle to help other people because so much of our experience is very shared. We have a shared human experience and, um, you know, struggle, as the sheikh said, is part of it. You know, they say no pain, no gain. And yet we sometimes forget that and we want everything to be just perfectly comfortable, but that's for Jannah. So I just want to read um, a short excerpt here. Uh, about why I wrote this book. So, things fall apart and they break sometimes. Like many of you, my journey hasn't always been easy. Pain is very real and so is loss. Sometimes it's hard not to let the weight of what we carry or the memory of what we've lost take over. Many of us know the reality of struggle and so many people suffer in silence. It is hard. It is hard not to give up when we face the repeated disappointments of life. 
Like some of you, I have known loneliness, I have known defeat, and I have fallen many times chasing mirages and broken many bones building castles in life's fading sands. Sometimes all it took was one solid wave to destroy what I had spent years building. And so I decided to give it a voice, all of it, the tears, the pain, and the lessons. The things which I saw and learned and gained along my own life path needed a voice. I wanted to give back in hopes of helping myself and others survive. But then it wasn't only about surviving. I didn't just want people to survive inside of their storms. I wanted people to thrive inside their storms. And so I wrote as I walked through my own. The words found in this book became my voice and my letter to the world. They became my deepest attempt to not only pick myself up, but others along the way. I wrote because just as we will fall in life, so will we rise. That's the thing about this world. It never gives us only one kind of path. There is pain, yes, and loss, and even darkness. But there is also light, there is hope, there is beauty, and there is also love and happiness. Okay, so we have about 15 minutes for Q&A. I'm going to ask that it's a question, so an example would be, can you elaborate a little bit more about blank, or how does blank apply to my life? No commentaries, please, and um, we'll start with our first questioner. Assalamu alaikum, Sister uh, Yasmin. Wa salam. I have a question about, um, we have uh, Islam, and then we have cultural Islam. What I see is, most of the time we tend to take the route of cultural Islam and then we, that's when we break rules of the real message of what Islam is, uh, whether it's a gender or any other uh, issues. Just touch upon that. Thank you. Uh, Bismillah. That's a really important question and I absolutely agree with you. I think that so much of the reason why we, we stumble in our path is because we take culture over deen. We take what our culture tells us over what Allah and his messenger tell us. And I can give you some examples of that. But um, for example, uh, the Prophet is reported to have been one to help in the home. Yeah, um, we, a lot of us talk about sunnah. We talk about following the sunnah and alhamdulillah, some of us, you know, um, are careful to have long beards and short pants. But we forget and we pick and choose from the sunnah, right? For example, the Prophet Aisha reports that he was one to help his family in the house. He used to sew his clothes and used to help in the household chores, if you may, yeah? And then when the time for salah came, he'd go and pray. He had this balance. But yet, in our cultures, our cultures will come and say, that that's not the job of men, right? That it's degrading for a man to wash the dishes. Things like that, right? So this is just a small example of how we pick and choose from the sunnah. And how we take our culture, because our culture told us that this isn't the job of men. And then we take our culture over the sunnah. In, in, this is, these are sahih traditions. These are, these are um, authentic narrations that the Prophet ﷺ did this. 
Another example is that we, um, for example, like when, when, a, when a person becomes religious, you'll find that often, not always, but often a person thinks that being religious means being very harsh, right? So the more harsh you are, the more religious you are, right? It's like this idea. And what ends up happening is that when this person becomes more and more religious, who gets the brunt of their harshness most? The family, within the home. And this is how they be religious, okay? But this completely, again, goes against the words and, and, and example of the Prophet The Prophet, for example, said, خيركم خيركم The best of you are the best to their families. That when a person is becoming more religious, how do you know that it's really working? Is that you're going to become better to your family, not worse. You're going to treat your family better. You're going to be more gentle and more uh, compassionate and have better adab and more um, manners and patience with your family, not less. And if, you're sh if it's actually the opposite, then that's an indication that there's something else going wrong, right? Because when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the light and love of Allah goes in the heart, the heart actually is supposed to become more soft and more compassionate and more merciful. When you look at the, the, the qualities of Rasulullah you find that he was extremely soft and he was extremely compassionate and merciful. We know many stories, right? The man who was urinating in the masjid and he was compassionate with him. He taught him with mercy. And he's telling us that the best are those who are best to our families. But sometimes when we start to get into the deen and get into the religion, it doesn't make us softer, it makes us harder. It makes us more harsh and actually almost just become more uh, mean with our families and those closest to us. So there's many examples of this. Uh, it's something we have to be careful about. Uh, we, we, we have to keep in mind that not to be like those who Allah mentions in the Quran, that the reason they didn't believe is because they say that we have to follow what our forefathers did. They never wanted to go away from what their forefathers did. And sometimes we may fall into that. No, no, this isn't my culture. But we have to be careful that it's okay to follow culture as long as it doesn't contradict religion. As long as it doesn't contradict what Allah and His Messenger say, wear what you want, eat what you want, you know, act as you want, as long as it doesn't contradict. Okay, we're gonna move on to the next uh, question. If you can keep it under 15 seconds. Okay, assalamu uh, alaikum. Thank you for your topic, but my question is a little bit provocative. I think um, sticking uh, to the Quran is not enough. We have seen people who follow the Quran become the best people in the world, and at the same time, people who follow the Quran become the worst people in the world. And like it's medicine. Allah said the Quran is medicine. Shifa. Shifa. Uh, oh, I am sick. Like I'm oral surgeon, for example. I'm sick. I'll take the whole antibiotic in one visit, in one time. Then it might kill me. So there is a missing link here. There is something should be with the Quran. You know, the Quran alone, there was the Prophet Muhammad. A book and a teacher. Book and teacher, they reach the best thing in the world. So this is a, like a dangerous to say alone the Quran will be the guide without the companionship of the righteous people. Thank you so much. Uh, Sheikh Yasser, maybe you can touch upon this. 
I think anyone who truly follows the Quran will obey the commands of the Quran. And one of the essential commands of the Quran is Qul Allah wa Rasul obey Allah and obey his messenger and obey those of, of leadership and those of understanding. And so um, it is undoubtedly the case that we have the revelation, but then we have the vehicle through which and by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manifested that revelation. And that was the person of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so he was, as our mother Aisha described, noted earlier by our dear sister, that he was a walking Qur'an. He was the Qur'an manifest. Um, and so the essential lens through which and by which we view the Qur'an is through the lens of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah jalla wa ala makes it that this entire deen, this entire religion is predicated on two pillars. La ilaha illallah, Muhammadun Rasulullah. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his messenger. And so when we're trying to explore and understand and, and realize what the true meanings of the Qur'an are, we have to go immediately to the person of our beloved messenger, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa who the Qur'an was revealed to over a period of 23 years, where based on circumstance and issue and, 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 and you know, um, difficulty, challenge, moments of happiness and sadness and joy and struggle, the Prophet was engaging and, and showing us how the Qur'an comes into to being. So I, I fully um, and utterly agree that we have to be weary of those who say, for example, you take the Qur'an and you reject the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. You reject the way of the Prophet ﷺ. By doing that, we are simply not fulfilling or obeying the commands of the Qur'an. We are therefore contradicting ourselves. If I say I will reject the Prophet's sunnah, then I am rejecting the Qur'an. It's really that simple because Allah makes it very explicit in the Qur'an. Wallahu okay, we have time for one more quick question. Okay, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. I'm a mother of two young children and I'm an educator also dealing with the teenagers and uh, some young, young youth members. I know I feel that we're disconnected with Quran and as you are saying, you know, we have to put some efforts and make some, you know, some, uh, take some pains. So I would like you guys to give us some recommendations, you know, how we can strengthen our connection with Quran and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I need some recommendations and some steps to follow, please. Dr. Jamila, do you wanna start off? Yeah, let's keep one more in. Bismillah. Barakallahu I mean, number one, sister, I would say is, you know, one of the, the, the beautiful virtues of our particular moment is that we have access to a lot of resources that can begin to help us imagine the Qur'an in different ways. And, you know, many of the individuals that you see in our conferences, um, in Isna and Ikna and in all of the conferences that we explore, a lot of them, bifadlillah, have brought the Qur'an um, into life in the English language, right? For, for a lot of our youngsters to begin to, to navigate and, and, and explore the beautiful stories and meanings and how it can be relevant and how it can be exciting and how it can be spiritually moving and how it can be relevant and how it can be empowering. And so, you know, one of the benefits of this, you know, 
uh, we have this you know, revolution in technology is that we can easily access those things. And so what I would say is that from a very young age, you know, if we don't have local scholarship and teachers that can sit down with our kids, and not just any teachers, I mean, very often, and this is no you know, shot to Sunday schools, Sunday schools is, is a beautiful initiative, but very often, sometimes, a child goes to Sunday school and they're turned off by the Qur'an because maybe the person who's teaching it teaches a message that may be harsh or difficult or scary. You know, and I see this all the time and I encourage anyone who here is a part of Sunday schools or is a Sunday school teacher to really think about curriculums and, and how to better teach the Qur'an. But bifadlillah, we have so many people from Umar Sulaiman, you know, and all of them are here, Yasir Qadi, you know, Abdul Nasr Jangda, all of them are shiyukh, you know, mal titles. Um, who, who, and you know, our dear sister Yasmin and, and many others who are doing wonderful work in those spaces that you can sit your children down from a young age, right? And, and have home halaqat, invite people. I mean, when I, I give khutbahs and I give Friday night classes and so on, and they're all live streamed. And you know, there are people who live in the same Massachusetts, they live in the same state, but maybe an hour away. And what they do is they sit down as families and they watch the live stream and they have a conversation. But the problem for very often is, and when it comes to parents now, is that we wait too late. We wait until the children are, have already developed an ethos about how they like to hang out, how they like to spend their time, how they spend their Friday night or their Saturday night or their Saturday afternoon. And then we, 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 we kind of take for granted the, the young, little, cute, naive child. Then they suddenly become a grown-up. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's, I've lost time and I'm trying to make up for lost time. And very often it's a much harder process. And so, you know, that's why the child when they're young, it's like etching a stone, right? Right? Teaching when children are young, it's, when you're, it's as if you're etching into stone. So you create those cultural experiences when they're a young age, around the Qur'an, and you make it very beautiful. You don't make the Qur'an a burden just about hiv, and you smack and hit and beat the child so that they can memorize. The memorization is beautiful. But when it, when it is attributed to pain, a lot of our hufad grow up to have nothing to do with the Qur'an later on, right? And they forget the Qur'an, and they resent the Qur'an because they attribute Qur'an with pain when they were younger. Just memorize, memorize, memorize. It has to be a beautiful experience. I was sitting with one of the speakers in the lounge yesterday and he was saying, you know, I, although my uncle right now, I disagree with him so much on so many things, but I always make dua for him because since I was a young child, he made salah such a beautiful thing for me. He would, whenever he would go to the masjid, he would take me out for ice cream. He made it such a beautiful and exciting experience until today, I love Salah because of my uncle that I disagree with on 80% of issues. But he was wise in how he introduced the Qur'an, uh, the Salah. So similarly with the Qur'an, young, be wise, be loving, and bring them to sources and individuals who treat or teach the Qur'an in a sensible, meaningful, and relevant way. And alhamdulillah, we have many of those resources. I hope that's useful, inshallah. Thank you. Okay, so we have... A minute and a half. I was just going to also add, making sure that <laughs> when we read the Quran, that we understand that we understand the Quran at an early age. I know that I don't. I know in our communities, I was I grew up in the community of Imam Wati Muhammad. 
and it was really emphasized that we read, we read the Quran with meaning. Obviously, we read an English Quran, right? And uh, I also know that he, Imam Muhammad, highly encouraged, almost to the point where many of his uh, followers thought that it was required to read the whole Quran in Ramadan. So we actually saw our parents taking this on as part of Ramadan, reading the Quran in, in our language in English, right? And so just one of the first memories I have of reading the Quran extensively, or I would say, you know, like a whole Jewess, was um, during Ramadan. And so, and already, if we've created this culture where we know we're striving even harder in that month and, and seeking Allah's reward and love and light and, and all, and so then they would just see that as a natural part of that. And, and lastly, just, you know, also make dua, of course, that Allah is the one who guides and, and puts that love and light in our heart. And uh, may he make our children, make us love the Quran and make us the people of the Quran. I mean, I mean, thank you so much. Well, I want to thank our panelists for coming out here tonight. We can give them a round of applause. And um, just to let you guys know, Sister Yasmin Mugahed is doing a book signing for both of her books um, at the Isna booth back there. So as you're making your way out, feel free to get a book and get it signed while she's here. And uh, there's another session starting at 8 o'clock, I believe. I don't know what it is. You can look in the booklet. That's what they're for. And thank you guys so much again. Have a good night.